0: hey oh it is season two of the sopranos podcast thank you all for joining us it's a sunny day here in jersey and by sunny i mean drizzly and grim we are here for (laughs) we are here for episode one season two conversion reaction how many more people have to die for your personal growth That is a quote by Dr. Melfi in the climactic scene of the first episode of season two. Guy walks into a psychiatrist's office. This episode was written by Jason Cahill and directed by the great Alan Coulter. Boys, we're back. Season two. uh, Very happy we were able to keep our schedule going. The Every Other Sunday. Your audio audio Sunday dinner is is back for season two. I didn't know we were going to get into this, but it's exciting. We're going to jump in like we always do, go around the table here. First thoughts, initial kind of reaction to the season two premiere of The Sopranos. We're starting a whole new 13-episode journey. Paul, thoughts on the premiere? Oh,
1: it's great to be back. And actually, there's an energy that brings us into this episode right away that I love. I love the opening. I love the Frank Sinatra track. And I'll say that this episode surprised me watching it, because I think before and after The Sopranos, there's been a sense that season enders and season openers often have something explosive in the plot, something big happens, either a big blow-off or something new beginning. This episode is subtle, and we're dealing with a dulled edge for Mm -hmm. Tony, and I think to a lesser degree, Christopher. The two most complicating characters from the first season, for example, are not terribly important Mm. in this episode. Junior is, he's in one image, he has no plot. Livia has been diminished. And so now we have to deal with some of the other characters. We bring back Big Pussy. We bring Janice in. And she's sort of filling that Livia role, of course. And I think most importantly is what Tony is going through. He's in a very interesting odd place in this episode where he's kind of won the war and now he's presiding over the peace and it's deeply complicated and it's leaving him unhappy, frustrated, bored, depressed. And we have to thread out the story from there. And it's subtly done. It's beautifully done. I think it's hilarious at times, as well as dangerous. Mm. The scene where he goes off the road is odd, funny in a way, but scary, as we reflect on at the end of the episode in the great scene at the diner with Dr. Melfi. So I thought it was methodical, even deliberately slow at times, but I thought it was a dynamic, fun intro to the new season that brought us back to the core of the show in many ways, even drawing on imagery from season one and the pilot.
2: Well said, Paul. Jordan? Yeah, Paul, I mean, that was that was really a perfect description of the episode. I will say that I thought the episode was very big. I thought it covered a lot of topics. I thought a lot of people had their small moment in it. It was just a very large episode. I thought the world had been expanded in a way. It just felt like a bigger piece. Uh, part of that was emotional. Part of that was was quite literal. There were some locations we weren't used to seeing. There were some new faces... It did a really nice job with checking in with everybody. I thought in terms of like a checklist, it it really hit all the buttons for me in terms of a premiere. It was quite funny. Um, And and to respond to something Paul said, I think we get this sense that, you know, peacetime is in a way worse for Tony. Like perhaps he's not as good at governance in peacetime as he is in war. So uh, this, of course, brings its own challenges. And, um, you know, in, in regular series television, when you have this kind of storytelling, usually this is the time to show off who your season's, like, big villain is going to be, like in the first episode, like they do something crazy. And actually, Janice is the one that fills that role in this episode. And that's also funny to see from a storytelling standpoint that the show will continue to go through this sort of atypical plotting by saying, hey, Tony's threats can come on either side of the definition of family. Yeah.
0: Well said, guys, and I agree. The show definitely has this feeling uh, of expansion, I, and a lot of shows do this in their second season. I'm, I'm brought instantly, if I can make a comparison, to Game of Thrones in a lot of ways, because season one felt very much like the Baratheons, the Lannisters, and the Starks, and it's a very personal story. And then we hear about Stannis, for example, uh, Robert's brother Stannis, and well, we don't meet him until the season two premiere or the big first chapter of the book if you're talking about the books. And so Janice is someone we've heard about briefly who is now here and immediately a major player. It also expands in many other ways. We meet Tony's lawyer, Junior's lawyer. We have some new, fun characters that we'll talk about in Chris's storyline. Carmela's parents, who we haven't seen, and they actually address why we haven't seen Carmela's parents up to this point. They were yeah. alienated by the Dragon Lady.
2: The Dragon Lady. Uh,
0: <laughs> so, I really like this premiere. I think it's a great start. It doesn't fire in, a, in like a bang-bang sense, but it fires in a dramatic sense, and it really kind of ignites the seeds for what is going to be a really dynamic season of television. So we got three plots going on here. Or, or actually, I have four because one is kind of woven through several of the other plots. But we have Big Pussy's back. We have Christopher running the stock brokerage in this kind of <laughs> mystic Lord. stock scam. Uh, yeah, Janice is, is back and already working as Janice does. And also something that is more of—I don't know—that I would even call it a subplot, but more of an undercurrent that comes up is um, we're getting a sense that Tony and Carmela are really not in a good place in their marriage. That is, uh, right. It made me quite sad throughout the episode. Where where should we start? Oh boy, I would start
1: well right at the top with the opening.
0: Yes, we can check the montage. Montage. Talk about the montage. It's a great montage. Great song. It's well put together. I think. You know, it's a very good year, is a great way to signify that A, some time has passed, and B, hey, we had a great first season. (laughs) So, um, and also, I I just like uh, a lot of the imagery we see here. For one thing that's noticeable to me is uh, Tony is playing solitaire. He's the boss, he's on charge. He's kind of alone in his new position and authority. And guys come in with a bag of money for him. I like the repeated gag of all these different things happening. Some things are very different, Livia and Junior's position, for example, and some things are very much the same. Uh, Carmela cooking, every time we see her, it's that same kind of slide shot of her walking out of the kitchen with some delicious-looking concoction. That, that, yeah, I wanted to come here and eat with you guys.
1: (laughs) These delicious casseroles.
2: We do get the sense that some things are the same, and in, in an enjoyable way. Uh, we get Silvio just buying some some nice shoes, some you know gangster spectator styled shoes, which I thought was a fun shot. We get uh, Polly and one of the Bada Bing girls on the table there. Uh, those things are, are fun <laughs> check-ins. Um, there are also some quite sad check-ins. We have uh, shortly after seeing Tony with his mistress, we see you know Tony crawling into bed and Carmela turning the other way. Uh, you know, so th- there's a lot of um, indication of what is to follow, uh, and yeah, we get our only look at junior in that montage as well mm. uh, in in prison still, just kind of as a as a reminder. This was like the most artful way of doing like a previously on that they could have yeah as as by way of a check in. Uh, Livia going through the rehab, that was kind of an
0: interesting uh, moment.
1: It's a nice cut too, because she's rotating her leg. Um, and it cuts right to the Bing, Bing girl with her leg expertly up in the air <laughs> as Polly bangs her on the bada Bing pool table. I also want to shout out before the music even begins this secret, sequ- this short scene. Excuse me, where the young Asian man is taking the Series Seven exam. <laughs> oh yes, for Christopher is so good. It's one shot. It's such a out of place setting for The Sopranos. It's also a really ballsy move to start this season. This writer's room had to have supreme confidence in themselves and the world that they created that you not only know these characters, their names, so you know, of course, this isn't Christopher, but you also have to have a sort of shorthand for the scams that they run. Yeah. This is a quick scene. Yeah. To really understand it, you gotta... So they're not spoon-feeding it to you. There's even a nice little bit where it seems like the young woman taking the exam next to the Asian guy is not buying it. She's looking at the guy like, maybe this guy's name is not Moltisanti. And Moltisanti. But then you're right into the next sequence, and that it just goes all the way through. All these little bits are so nicely done. Tony playing solitaire, as Chris mentioned, is so nice. There's something visually I find in this whole sequence about Tony that's a little eerie he's always in the half-light he's usually angled away from the camera for yeah. me it felt a bit like a forward to how something is incomplete in his life in this episode he's not a complete mess but he is right he's, at the edge he's off balance that's the word he, that's I wrote a great I term like, for yeah, it he, he's that's just, perfect curriculum. his equilibrium
0: is all over the yeah. place he he yeah Obviously, Janice is the kind of person who frustrates Tony and, in fact, many of the audience members of The Sopranos. But to the point that he gets where Carmella has to, you know, be like, relax go have a beer please you know (laughs) so that's there uh and yeah i agree there's definitely something off with tony just to mention while we're talking about the montage too i love the um we get little just a little touchdown on the kids and how they're doing meadows learning how to drive they're growing up first thing i wrote when i saw aj was whoa growth spurt he's uh oh yeah yeah it's it's like somebody fixed the 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 horizontal Image, it's like he's kind of he's up, up and in a little bit, and uh, he's also yeah. very, very, in, in very 13 14 year old fashion, like worried about his shitty haircut and, and yeah. making sure it's perfect. He's thinking about, oh, I can't just be a a, a tubby weirdo for the girls. That's right. Yeah.
2: I was gonna say, for the first time, he's concerned about his appearance. You know, yeah. I don't think he was a character that really looked in the mirror a lot prior to this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: I was wondering. What we were going to do now for fun, now that we can't make fun of his Marilyn Manson shirts anymore. (laughs) Uh, Another just quick one, a nice contrast in terms of whatever due diligence the young Asian man presumably did in preparation of taking this Series 7 exam in Chris's name. The only actual shot of Chris in that opening montage is him nursing that love of old gangster movies and doing a line of cocaine. (laughs) So that will be a nice indicator of what his discipline will look like in this episode.
0: Yeah, really good. Anything else to say about the montage?
2: I think that's about it. I, cool. I think it was a nice way to check in on everybody, uh, you know, including what's become of uh, Melfi and the current, you know, state of affairs ah, yes. between, you know, you know, what's going on in her life. She's mm-hmm. out at a hotel or I should say a motel like a, a common prostitute or something. Mm. Uh, and that, that was really kind of heartbreaking to see.
0: Yeah, and it, it, it evoked
2: the comment Tony made to her in season
0: one where he says, I don't feel like being made to feel like I'm pouring my heart out to a fucking call girl. And mm-hmm. here she is in yeah. this cheap kind of Jersey, you know, highway motel.
1: I um, hadn't thought of that. That's a great connection. All I wrote was that this hotel, I'm sorry, motel, this setting is humiliating for her. There's like a bottle opener by the door, there's a <laughs> shitty yeah, Monet reprint on the wall. Of course, it's in great yeah. contrast to the more elusive paintings in her
2: office. Yep. It
0: was, just, yeah, so it looked really, it looked and felt really rough. Yeah. Yeah, she's in Tony Soprano's world now, boy. And then we get right in. I'm going to jump right into this uh, because this is what the show gives us first after the montage. We get what may be becoming a season premiere tradition with Tony walking down and getting the paper. And there's a Cadillac, and I love that they kind of almost mimic the Goodfellas shot when Pussy gets out of the car and it lifts a little bit. Like, you know uh, you know what I'm talking about, that shot in Goodfellas in the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, Pussy gets out and Tony starts running up the driveway. And, you know, it's funny. My dad, when I watched the show with him, said right away, like, yeah, that newspaper thing, he needs to have somebody else do that. That's that's not a good habit for a mob boss to get in is walking at the end of your driveway by yourself in a cul-de-sac, you know. But he's down there, he's getting his paper, pussy steps out. The one thread left hanging in season one is what we start with. And then they have a terrific series of scenes. Thoughts on Mm -hmm. Big Pussy's back? What do we think about this?
2: Well, I I thought the initial meeting between them was actually, like, very realistic. Yes. Uh, I I thought the writing was, like, especially good here. Because these characters have so much to say to each other, but there's so much danger in them having really any conversation. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, Tony inviting him into the house instead of not wanting to speak on the street. That could be a dangerous place for both of them. Also, never has the membrane been more thin between Tony's home life and Tony's mob life, so much so that he has to take Pussy down into the basement where... I get the impression in the Soprano house, and I said this in our season one... That the basement is where Tony goes to have like his private ugly time, right? That's where he works out and makes his strange noises. That's where <laughs> you know he watches his war documentaries. That's like the that's almost like the transition point between his mob life and his home life. So that's that's where he brings pussy da- you know down into the basement, down into the depths, yeah. to to hash this out. My one, it's not a criticism of this scene. It was just something that I noticed for myself as a viewer. I just thought like. Come on, Tony. Just you know, you're you're smarter than this. You know, this is this is so suspicious. I felt the scene was suspicious. I you know. Well, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, they're
0: sus- they're definitely still suspicious of each other. And another sure. thing, we- Tony well, pats him. Tony pats him down right yeah, there. Yeah, physically pa- and Pussy picks picks right up on it. And that's something I want to mention because we were talking and joking about in season one. Uh, Jimmy Altieri, who's the worst, most stupid rat in the history of the mob. And here's Pussy, and that is not the case for him at all. He's not stupid. He's a smart guy. And Tony is used to being the smartest guy in the room. Now I'm not saying that I think Pussy is necessarily sharper than Tony, but he does have an instinct for this in the same way that Tony does. He knew that somebody was on to him. Yeah, I love when he's like, I you don't think I know when all my friends turn their hearts to stone against me? Fuck and you come out yeah. my house at 3 o'clock telling me you're my friend, you know? And Tony yeah. just has nothing
2: to say to that. He just
0: kind of looks sullenly at his
2: coffee, like, yeah. Sure. Well, here, here's part of the problem, is that whether Pussy is smarter than Tony or not, they have a 30-year history. Yeah. And Pussy is very aware of something that Tony said, not in his presence in Season 1, which is like, you know, I fucking love that man. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, Tony... Tony really loves Pussy, and Pussy Uh, knows this. I felt
1: similarly about this sequence to you guys. I thought it was very well done. Vincent Pastore really does a great job and ratchets up the tension. I felt I wanted to pose the question to you guys about what makes Tony, if not trust Big Pussy, let this play out for the time being in this seemingly inadvisable way, as Jordan mentioned. Because one thing that I thought of, there's a line much later in the series, another character says, how much more betrayal can I take? And Tony is coming off of this experience where his own mother betrayed him. And is it that he can't take any more of that? Is it that he wants to, again, as Chris mentioned just a few minutes ago, come back to an equilibrium, which would include Big Pussy coming back into the inner circle I was wondering about it because
0: something felt suspicious about this to me as well. Right. Tony doesn't trust him, but he doesn't want to believe the worst about him, I think, because very much like you said, he's just been through an awful betrayal. We get the sense that Pussy's not just a friend, but a great gangster and a good earner. And this is a time when Tony's going to need friends and allies uh, to to kind of rebuild after the war with Junior. And, you know, I just think that He's going to check the story out, as we find out in a few more scenes. He has Paulie kind of check into all of it. But Pussy, like I was just saying, Pussy's no dummy. His story, while not fully quenching Tony's suspicions, makes sense. Like, I buy his story on a surface level. He had he was having the back issues. All of a sudden, everybody's suspicious of him, and he knows it. He goes, There's yeah. this acupuncturist down in Puerto Rico... It's not something Tony believes, nor should he, but it's
2: not something that's utterly implausible, is it? I, I think it is. I mean, I <laughs> this is just my take, and maybe it's not the popular take, but like, I think the story sounds like complete bullshit. It's like, I had to go to an acupuncturist in fucking Puerto Rico. <laughs> I got a mistress who's 26, and that's where I've been for all these months or however long <laughs> it's been. It's just, it's too much for me. And I'm not saying that that's that's bad writing. I'm saying actually that's very good writing. I'm saying that Tony should be able to hear this story and be like, no fucking way. But there's just something about Pussy. You know, he just, he loves him.
0: Yeah, we're talking about this storyline, so I don't mind going, uh, jumping a little bit ahead here. But he gets this story. He pats Pussy down, doesn't feel a wire. Just blatantly pats him down. Accepts him back. Has Pauly check out his story. And then, he's still not quite right with... like That That lingering shot over the grill later on during the cookout is a very jarring moment, and it's a sense that, like, despite everything kind of coming up clean, you, you pass your background check, Tony knows something's off. He's There's something deep in Tony that maybe isn't ready to accept it, but knows something's uh, a little fucked here. I yeah. think that's true, and I think that... That's a very nice
1: framing of the whole episode with things slowly becoming more clear, particularly to Tony, about what is happening in his life and where and how he's vulnerable. A detail that I wrote down in my notes in this scene in the basement was essentially about dark instincts serving one well, Mm -hmm. in a way. Tony's newfound lack of caring about whatever's Big Pussy's back problems are, to me felt connected to what he'll also say in this episode. All this shit about his mother having a stroke, fuck that. It's what they call a conversion reaction, what we chose for the title of our episode. And I was wondering if Tony's skepticism, which would serve him well in suspecting pussy, actually comes out of this horrible experience of his own mother betraying him and him becoming spe- skeptical about her own health issues. Wow,
2: that's... I think some of it is that, you know, when you no longer trust your own mother, your perception of trusting anyone then becomes so skewed. I think Tony is trying to figure that out for himself because, you know, he's, uh, as you said before, he's hes very thrown off balance in this episode. This, this episode is a lot about lacking balance or... Or feeling disoriented in some way you know yeah a a conversion reaction a big fucking opera brought on by repressed rage couldn't we say that about the entire show and and this episode (laughs) included you know Mm
0: -hmm. yeah wow that's amazing i love that and of course it's a great reason to name this episode that because uh, i think that's exactly that is the sopranos not just this episode but the sopranos very well said jordan let's move through this a little bit the very next thing we see is the kind of while junior is not featured in this episode tony is tying up loose ends and we see this uh hit go down it's sort of like who's in you know when pussy's back they're talking like so what's going on who's still over at junior's crew and it's this guy we've never met before uh philly parisi and we see him uh almost put through a test. This guy, uh, Gigi, who we're going to get to know more about later on, Gigi Sistone, another first appearance for a character that's going to stick around a bit. And he rides in the car, and Phil instantly is just yammering about, just giving everything up, and it's almost as if Tony sent him in with the mission, like, see if he'll talk, see what he says, can we trust this guy, is he a big mouth, and Sort of like as he talks about all this and spreads the rumor, Tony does not want this rumor going around that he tried to kill Olivia. That's ugly, yeah. ugly. That's some ugly shit, as Gigi says. And um, Phil does not pass the test, and he uh, shoots him. One thing I want to say about this hit that I think is just very cool and very in line with what The Sopranos does with violence. And the creators will always talk about this how they try to always have some kind of unique or distinct or interesting element to the violence. They didn't want just violence for violence's sake. And I just thought it was an excellent touch that this hit goes down in the car and then Gigi's like, ah, like the, the volume of the gun going off in the car is just a nice touch that somebody had to think of and made made this hit, you know, distinct.
1: It is. It's really nicely done. And also I wondered if, again, as Gigi says to Philly, that's a nasty rumor Maybe you shouldn't spread that around. That's some ugly shit. Again, is there a poisoning in the ear kind of imagery of Gigi's ear hurting that it's a mm. deliberate kind of symbolic image in some way? But uh, yeah, it's a really nicely done sequence. Um, I also like that Philly's wife tells him to remember the pastries. Yes. Clemenza style <laughs> from one. Yep. Uh, except yeah. he's the one that that doesn't come back from the trip. So.
2: Yeah, part of the the gangster oath is that you must keep your mouth shut. This was one of our major themes uh, in the first season. This has now come back with deadly consequence in season two. The people that are loudmouths, the people that are spreading rumors, talking out of turn—these are the people that are going bye-bye. And this is this is Tony's basically new world edict, right? Mm-hmm. People talking, no one's going to talk. This is—he's tying up all the loose ends. He's taking out anybody disloyalty the rest of junior's crew whatever he's got to do he's consolidating power that's how he's spending peace time
0: yep absolutely he tells his guys in the season finale of one ask now because this is not coming up again and he means that life or death you're not going to talk about me and my therapy that's not a subject that's going to come out ever after this moment so get it out Mm -hmm. now and uh phil is not uh going to make it under the tony regime so he's shoring up his power he's they give Melfi a call, you're all set, you're clear. Melfi, also suspicious. I think another fun note about this little Melfi scene, I believe the guy she's has in therapy is Matthew Weiner. I think that's a, a Matthew Weiner who later went on to write for the show and become the creator of Mad Men. I think that's him.
1: In this sequence,
0: it's uh, Terry Winter.
2: Oh, it's Terry Winter. I knew it
0: was somebody on the show. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, Terry
2: Winter. That's oh, right. Chris, forget it. You're fucking fired, man. Get off. <laughs> <it>. <laughs> Ah, uh,
0: sorry. I, uh, yeah,
2: that's uh, shameful. I confused two of the... Someone has disgraced
0: themselves. <laughs> yeah, that is Terence Winter. Correct. Sorry, I confused my winter and my whiner. I was only <laughs> off by two letters! Come on! Anyway. Oh! <laughs> so, yeah, so that happens, and very cool. And then we get into this uh, kind of new thing. That, that It's sort of like, once Melfi is free from the motel, that beat is kind of... That, that whole post-junior beat is set aside and we get into the episode proper almost it feels like and we are introduced to the uh the the brokerage and chris is like literally sleeping on the job he's kind of put in here (laughs) as the sec compliance officer to scam the shit out of these uh fixed income people selling this bullshit stocks this is called a pump and dump scheme for those of you who aren't familiar with the mob. the way that shit works. I'm not entirely familiar with the exact intricate details, but it's essentially they push this false stock, bump it, bump it, bump it, bump it, bump it and then sell it right before it crashes. That kind of thing. And uh, we meet two characters, Matt Bevelacqua and Sean Gizmonte, who are... Chip and Dale. <laughs> Chip and Dale. Yeah. I think they're darkly comic characters but you're just struck immediately with just how stupid and volatile they are i think they that's the point point. and these are chris's chippendale at the office as uh, they're referred to later by silvio thoughts on uh, this scene this little plot thread and the new characters we've just met
2: I was instantly reminded of Brendan Falone from the first season, you know, they, they've kind of these are the spiritual successors to just like, the dumb, <laughs> wannabe gangsters, knock-around guys that will do fucking anything, and boy oh boy if your boss is Christopher, who's already such a fuck-up, you've got to be ten times worse, you know so, uh, very very enjoyable, frankly. Yeah.
1: I felt similarly, and I thought there's one moment, that moment when Silvio refers to them as Chippendale Ray <laughs> Curto another one of the sort of elder statesmen of this family says, oh, fuck me, these kids. So the whole rollout (laughs) of Succession seemed to feel to me like, now these are very directly Tony's headaches because he's the boss. And as Jordan just eloquently framed out, Chris is dumb and undisciplined enough already in his own right. So how bad are these guys going to be? Yeah. So specifically in this storyline, even though it's lighter, there's a lighter touch than what's happening with Tony, it felt like Chris, again, is working on a very similar frustration Mm. where he has actually moved up in the world. Yeah. This is a good opportunity for him, right? This is going to be a nice scam. They're going to make some money off of it. He hates it. Oh, yeah. He hates this office. It's deadening to him, right? So he's
0: acting out, he's uh, shirking his various duties, it becomes a problem. He talks to Tony in season one about the regularness of life being too much, so of course he's not out jacking trucks or Porsches, he's sitting in a stockbroker's office. And as far as gangsterism goes, I don't know that it gets much easier or even safer than (laughs) that. Yet, he can't stand it. He has to
2: get out, go down to shore. Sure. Uh, speaking of, uh, of Chip and Dale, of Matthew and Sean, just the fucking beating they delivered to that one poor <laughs> junior broker. Just pouring coffee on this guy, beating the shit out of him. sent him to the emergency room. Yeah. It was just very, uh, unfortunately, very funny. Yeah. Very, oh, very funny.
0: Yeah, the, the way they dump
2: the coffee on him. You're
0: supposed to push with <laughs>
2: Sean and
0: his fucking suspenders. I love that look, but he's such a douchebag. It's... it's <laughs> As Jordan
1: said, it's unfortunately very funny. There's also that Sopranos light touch to this whole scheme. It could just be the mood I was in when I viewed it a couple nights ago, but I felt, like, gross about this scheme. Oh, yeah. About, like, scamming these older people on a <laughs> fixed income.
0: I was like, ugh. Yeah. But, of course, it is yeah. rendered with a lot of humor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's. It's... It's great. Yeah, and I love, uh, like you said too, Paul, I love the mature, like, Chris has grown a little. He's still very low on the totem pole, and he still has a lot of growing up to do, as we'll see in Christopher's last scene in this episode. But it's, it's, it's an interesting change for him to see him giving somebody else orders. It's like he and Brendan were the two young douchebags. Now he has to kind of find a middle between not being anywhere close to Tony level, but also like he has his own, he has to deal with it. I love the little touch that they give when he's like, has them break down the scam and then gives them that kind of advice. And just when we think, Oh, Chris is uh Maybe growing up a little bit, he tells he doesn't tell him to stop stealing Porsches. He says, "You know, make it two towns over and give me a taste." <laughs> I love that yeah. little moment. That's a, <laughs> it's a it's a very fun touch at the end of that scene. Yeah,
2: these new characters also give us a sense of kind of the new hierarchy in the family, mm-hmm. uh, and also this godlike idolization of Tony. You yeah. know, when when can we see Mister T? Yeah, you <laughs> know, these the... two
0: cap motherfuckers together. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh, and and the uh, very unfortunate scene at the bar where where Chris hits Adriana slaps and, and her, she yeah. hits back, yeah. So uh, not not all of his growth has been good growth, right?
0: Know? Yeah, I hate that they make me laugh in that scene because it's like uh, he slaps her and that's like a whoa whoa Chris what the fuck and he, you know she's talking about him cooking his shit so we know that he's not just snorting some coke now he's he's cooking up his heroin and. She calls him a junkie, and so we're seeing that like these guys, it's important on a narrative level because we're getting a first glimpse that these guys don't see Chris as the ultimate authority figure that they need to respect. he's kind of a gatekeeper for Tony, and you know, right? They, they, and they're they're completely pathetic. You know, we'll do all that shit. We'll do his, you know, pick up his shirts, do kill kill people, do wet work as, as they call. <laughs> we'll do we'll do any of that shit. But they have to make me laugh. <laughs> By Chris calling uh, using the Jersey pronunciation of Hua, uh, fucking like he slaps her, they like she slaps back. You fucking Hua! Yeah, go home and cook my dinner. <laughs> yeah, that's where
1: she's going. <laughs> yeah, the constancy that Chris, I imagine, would like Adriana to have, is what Carmela provides. Yeah. In fact, as frustrated as she is, as she has every right to be in this episode. Every image of her in that opening sequence is on the domesticated front bringing out dinner. And at the end of the episode, when Tony is down and out, he goes home to her. Mm, so That's right. Yeah. That's
0: a great segue, Paul. Let's talk a little bit about Tony and Carmela in this episode, and then we'll get to Janice and bring it all home. But Tony and Carmella, we they're not in a very good place, right? From the montage all the way through to the end. Very interesting scene that kind of um, wedges the beginning and the end together is the scene with Carmela and her parents, who we have not met yet, played by great actors. and Tom Aldridge in particular. Yes, I'm Tom Aldridge is, Tom is Aldridge. I mean, legendary, done all kinds yeah. of stuff. And uh, Carmela's mother also played, funnily enough, uh, Lorraine Bracco's mother in Goodfellas. So she does that kind of high-strung <laughs> mother character, you know. The man hasn't been able to digest a decent meal in six weeks, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I love the character of Hugh, even just in this little scene we get. I obviously can't talk about the stuff we haven't seen yet with our spoiler policy, but that fucking line makes me laugh out loud every time when she tells sends him to the store for the pears and he's like, "Is that the dole?" And she stops. I'm not even gonna answer this time. <laughs>
2: <laughs> they're very
0: funny but the point of this scene is twofold one that livia has been so so toxic and in influence in everybody's life that they basically stayed away uh to avoid having to interact with livia so that's one and two yeah. this whole idea that they float of livia or float it said that tony would get bored with her and then we get that kind of sad lingering shot on Carmela as she's uh mixing up the cake uh thought, yep. but but let's talk about tony and Carmella and where they're at and how this episode sure. plays out for them
2: so it springs forth actually from the montage where we see uh tony with his mistress and then uh subsequently in the montage we see him uh taking off his clothes which still smell like he's been to bed with another woman uh he's putting them in in the washing machine presumably just leaving him in his his underwear goes up to bed to see Carmela and uh you know they're they're turning to face each other and then she turns away and that's our first indication that you know uh there is trouble in paradise so to speak uh later on in the uh episode any kind of attempt by Tony to be, you know, physically close to Carmella or, you know, affectionate is is kind of spurned. We have, of course, the scene at the party where, yes, as you as you just mentioned, it is revealed to us that at one point Livia had said to Carmella, in fact, on her wedding day, mm. that Tony would eventually get bored of her. Jesus Christ! And as, I forgot that it was her wedding that, day. Yeah, as you said, that lingering shot on Carmela lets us know, the audience, that, like, this is how she's starting to feel. She's starting to feel neglected, and that maybe she's been foolish in allowing Tony to really go out and do what he wants in terms of having other women or another life.
0: Mm.
1: One thing that struck me in this viewing, it hasn't really happened before, I thought for a minute, does Tony think that Carmela is stupid? Or, let me rephrase that, does he not seriously underestimate how shrewd a north jersey woman she is let me let me get this perfumed shirt off and then my wife won't wonder why i'm crawling into bed at 4 a.m. i mean come <laughs> right. on you know and so beyond that we also see as as jordan mentioned carmella pulling away a bit also i think being so shrewd in knowing before i think tony even does that he is off balance that scene great scene Mm. At Livia's old house. Yes. When he starts ragging on these kids, Tony's violence in this episode is awkward and impotent.
0: Mm. He's like gonna he's gonna round up these kids. Yeah, I, I wrote how funny the, an idea that <laughs> yeah. was. Like he's gonna hunt down these local high school people, and what what are you gonna do? Exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and so Carmela calls him out on it, even though he's going from this kind of emotional resonance and this anger to saying a moment later, I've been in a great mood lately. Carmela says, yeah, right. (laughs) So she knows. And there is something neglected. There's something frustrated. But what's interesting about that line, that kind of haunted line from her wedding night, when Livia said, Tony will get bored with you. The last image of the episode to me seemed to suggest that Carmela is actually the one you want around when shit gets bad, but also when it's boring. Because she's constant.
0: yeah. So that was my reaction. This storyline kind of has a little button in the final scene of the episode, which I want to wait to talk about until we get there. So I want to shift this conversation into uh, two other important women in Tony's life that we're just meeting for the first time. Huge appearance for Janice, or Parvati, from the West Coast. And uh, from Seattle. (laughs) And uh, Tony's other sister, Barb, who is uh, not all that far away. I I wrote down um, where she's from here, but I can't find it in my notes. Uh, Brewster. Brewster, right. Which Uh, is upstate in New York. I think so. Yeah, it's not 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 terribly far from Jersey, but far enough that it's you know it's a it's a bit it's a bit of a deal to have a visit, you know, <laughs> which I think is is very deliberate on Barb's part. Um, <laughs> so this is interesting. I, I, I'll talk about Barb first because there's less to talk about there, and then we'll get really dig in on Janice, our new uh, our new character. But but God, Barb seems so normal, and it's funny because like she did the in between. Tony stayed. With Livia and me, you know, as we talked about in in depth last season, didn't understand exactly. He, he kind of had these rose-colored glasses about who Livia was to a certain extent. And the sisters got it. Barb got it and, like, made, pitched in financially. But, like, nope, I'm getting the fuck out of here. And Janice, yeah. of course, goodbye as soon as she could. So what do we think about this dynamic here with the three siblings together? We have everybody assembled, and then let's really uh, dig in on Janice here. New character, big character.
2: Uh, My impression of Barb uh, from the little bit we get is that because she's the baby of the family, there was not perhaps as much pressure on her to take care of Livia or to have this responsibility that really should fall on the eldest, uh, or in this case, Tony, the eldest male. Uh, I think Barb is smart. Uh, she understood what the situation was, as you said, and she, you know, got really into it with her new family. This happens to all of us when we get married to someone, you know. You kind of have a moment where you evaluate what your relationship is with your own family, with your spouse, and with their family, and there is a little bit of an opening or an avenue to, you know, not divorce yourself from your family, but put in some distance there. Mm. And if Barb felt that Livia was a toxic presence, which evidently she did, she has this opening now in, in Brewster to get away from the family a bit, which seems to have really worked out for her. And in the reunion scene between her and Janice, I mean, they, they acknowledge that they were kind of fine with Tony handling everything up to that point, because Livia is so toxic. Janice, as the eldest sibling, really had the born responsibility to take care of Livia, but obviously couldn't take it. And yeah, it fell, it fell on Tony. I feel quite bad for Tony, honestly.
0: Yeah, thoughts on Janice, Paul? Janice is here, and uh, she's from Seattle, and she has a fancy pillow got stolen, and she's making miso soup in the Soprano kitchen. Ergonomic. <laughs> <laughs> it's a $300 pillow, which we're going to fucking pay for. Oh, my God. Uh, so many <laughs> funny lines. Here's one
1: that I think is funny. The following sequence of events happen right on top of each other. Tony sits down in the back of the bada bing with Hesh and another new character named Neil Mink. His lawyer, favorite of mine, really funny. And Tony, they're talking about the new headaches of the federal indictments and XYZ, trying to limit his exposure to Rico boo boos, as Neil Mink says. And Tony says the following The only way to run a family these days is bunker style. Peer out through the slit. Phone rings. Janice is back. (laughs) I mean, this is not an accident. And I also don't believe it's an accident, again. These dark instincts possibly serving you well. Tony's mistrust of his own mother now translating pretty directly into a mistrust of Janice, which might be in some ways technically unfair, but (laughs) not unwise. As we'll learn more and more about Janice as we go on, I like that they have that scene by the pool. Mm. The pool continues to reflect the dynamic of family, and how tenuous it can be. I thought this whole episode was a really fun intro for Janice. Also, Aida Totoro, I just want to do this shout-out because this character is so fucking annoying. Yes. But this is a really top-shelf performance. Oh. And when these two characters go at it, when Aida Totoro and Gandolfini are on screen together,
0: it's fire. I wanted to talk about that, Paul, because, you know, yes... Tony and Janice are two very different people, obviously, but they have such... uh, James and Aida have such great chemistry as these two characters, even just right off the bat. Like, wow, that makes sense. And I think I want to bring up that these two actually starred, if you can picture this, those of you out there familiar with it, I think it was in the 90s, starred in Streetcar Named Desire together. Mm -hmm. Think about James Gandolfini, Stanley Kowalski for half a second. Um, And... They, I, I don't know if they knew each other before that, or if they became close through that show. I'm not entirely sure, but I imagine that their chemistry together in that was a natural fit. Somebody was like, "Oh, Tony and Ada, uh, uh, James and Ada Totoro will kill this together." You know, I don't know how far back they planned that casting but it was really inspired casting and oof so much to come from from this performance in this character
2: do you think there was always the intention to bring janice in as a character do you think that's something the writers had planned in season one or is she just something that they decided to say like hey what if she came in all of a sudden i don't know interesting
0: question i don't i want to say that they maybe didn't know that janice was going to ever appear they certainly mention her and we see her briefly in the uh the down neck episode from season one as a child, but I don't think anyone involved in the show, we've had any inkling there would be a season two. So I think once they knew season two was coming, it was like, okay, what can we do? And I think bringing Janice in for season two is a natural decision, given how things turned out in one and where we are now. And, but uh, no, as far as like, I think that that was like, okay, well, Let's bring in let's bring in the uh the soprano siblings. See what happens here. Yeah. And then uh you know she's um trying to prevent the sale of the house. We don't know enough about Janice yet to know what her end game is here, but we know that she's definitely playing some kind of game. Just based off of Tony's distrust of her and the fact that the real estate sign, she pulls up in Livia's car, you know, what is Janice working well, at here?
2: Yeah, the show goes out of its way To make her seem like a foolish character, Mm -hmm. one that we should not maybe take very seriously in a way that's specifically very opposite to the lifestyle of the North Jersey Sopranos. I mean, ergonomic pillows and miso soup and calling yourself Parvati and all that stuff. I mean, she is very counter to the culture of the Sopranos. So we automatically actually have a distaste for this character. Um, because she not only opposes Tony's agenda regarding Livia, but because she kind of opposes this way of life that we're accustomed to kind of enjoying when we come to visit the show. So it's um, it's interesting from that perspective uh, as well. Uh, I think we all, we all have a distrust of Janice for those reasons.
1: That's a good point. Yeah. I also felt a bit like, of course, like so many of the characters that we know, she's essentially running a scheme or a number of schemes. But just as Jordan pointed out, They're a little haphazard. They're not very sophisticated. Perhaps even though the character seems to invite our suspicion and even our dismissal, it's more, again, perhaps reflecting on how Tony has had this trauma of intimate betrayal Mm. from his mother. It's more what Janice can bring out in Tony. As Carmela points out, like, what do you care about this? But there's old wounds. There's resentments. Tony can't resist going and looking and peeking in at what she has in the car. Yeah. He could just leave yeah, the garbage right. at the side of the house and go back to his party and quote, have some pleasure. He can't <laughs> leave it alone. Yeah. And that is going to add to the emotional lability and the lack of
0: balance and equilibrium that we talked about. Absolutely very well said guys
2: anything else on the topic of uh of janice and this uh kind of sister story yeah yeah when he gets the phone call that janice has come in from seattle he is actually pretty quick to you know invite her to stay in his home Mm. and and maybe to have a a prolonged stay in his life I, i think part of what's very painful about these early episodes of season two is that you can see that tony does want a connection with his family uh even as we'll get into with Livia, which is so complicated. So despite whatever misgivings he might have about Janice or whatever past trauma he might have from his relationship with Janice, and it doesn't seem like she was always a great older sister, he does still want her in his life. Tony leaves a lot of doors open even when he says that they're closed.
1: Very well said. I only have one shout-out. This is just a funny line. Carmella's mother, who hasn't presumably seen Janice in several years and knew her as Janice, says, Parvati, she's a cheese now? And she says, no, It's a I guess she was thinking of Havarti. And Parvati. That's what she was looking for. And uh, Carmela says, no, it's a Hindu goddess. And she says, nice for her. But I just thought
0: Parvati, she's a cheese now,
1: is a funny line.
0: Oh, yeah. No, this very episode good. had a lot of very funny lines. One line I liked that I want to point out and reference much later in the show, but I just want to... Uh, I, I, Janice's reaction to Pauly uh, when she first sees him into the backyard <laughs> made me kind of cock my head and smile yeah. Polly Gualtieri Jesus isn't he dead yet <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm gonna butt, put a button in that for a much much later uh, podcasting episode but just very funny so very nicely let's talk about how this episode kind of crescendos which is with this tony driving he's listening to smoke on the water by deep purple he's having a little fun with it and then the cd starts skipping and we get a little frank zap 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 and he's <laughs> he's getting he starts slapping it mother fuck, you know and um then he starts getting like oh boy oh boy oh boy and boom Car crashes shortly after he is confronting Melfi in the diner in what has to be the breakaway scene, the star scene of this episode. Yep. That's the best scene in the episode. Yep. Uh, so let's talk about it. This is um, in a show that started in a therapist's office. We've seen Tony without it for this episode. We've talked at length about how he's kind of off balance. His equilibrium isn't quite there. And he's feeling a lot of things as, new, as old doors open, new doors open.
2: What, uh, what do we make of this scene? Let's talk about, let's break this diner scene down. The first thing that I think of is that uh, a diner, as much as I love diners, diners always seem like a foreign location to me. It's like the place you go to when you're you're on the road, you're out of town, you're on the run, you're hiding from someone. And then in comes Tony, and um, you see Melfi, she's like halfway through her meal, the great Great Lorraine Bracco performance here where you see how physically threatened she feels by him. He grabs her arm so she won't go anywhere, won't try to scream. That is so t- all, fright- cut, all All cutlery stays where it is. Yeah, so frightening. <laughs> and, um, you know, she is, it, like, in full fight-or-flight mode in this scene, and he is trying to talk her back from that ledge, and for one of the first times in the show, he doesn't succeed. It's a really good, really real conversation because there's nothing he can really say to make it okay for her she's been so violated she has a patient that has died as a direct result of his actions they've committed suicide so that is more blood on his hands again i'm remembered of you know tony is like death come knocking he causes death everywhere he goes even he doesn't even realize it uh death is incidental around him and Melfi says get out of my life and you know he he does give her this final sad look as he look you know walks past the table and it does seem like that could be it. The show could conceivably end their relationship there and just say nope, Tony fucked this up too bad. It was a very real episode, real in how guarded she is and how defensive she is and also real in how genuine he is in his pleas for her help uh, that he does not get.
1: That's a really nice deconstruction of that scene to bring it back to what led us to this moment. Obviously, Tony slowly unraveling through the episode. And then that wonderful scene that Chris described, smoke on the water in the car. And something that I really am embarrassed to say I connect with, getting absolutely enraged at inanimate (laughs) objects that fail to produce the technological response that I need.
0: I may have been close to that reaction myself before recording today.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, And then, of course, the Fun Sopranos irony of... Once Tony has crashed the car and passed out, the song kicks back in. Yeah. Following that, in fact, immediately following that, Tony visits another therapist in a rustic office, unforgivably wearing this all-denim outfit. And that... Terrible. Yeah, it's pretty bad. That whole scene seemed to me to kind of show a negative to really understand the positive of something that we mentioned a number of times through season one. This was more than just a relationship between a patient and therapist. There was a deep connection here. There was an uncharacteristic trust that Tony placed in Melfi. Here, there's none of that gentleness. There's none of that trust. Tony easily lies to the guy, even though the guy doesn't quite buy it. And that points us to this last scene of kind of as Jordan mentioned, Tony's last stand in trying to bring Melfi back into his life, Mm. and she pushes him away, says that line get out of my life and of course our pull quote, how many more people have to die for your personal growth, I think again is something Tony has wrestled with, will continue to wrestle with his relationship to other people and his effect on the world and I just want to bring it back to I'd say two shots that kind of frame the episode for me at the beginning tony calls her at the motel and says it's over it's safe to go home and she is outraged and upset have you been following me is somebody watching me that sense that we talked about a couple times in the first season that someone something is watching and there's this really nice shot where she opens up the door to the motel room and looks out and is wondering about being seen That shot is essentially recreated when Tony walks out of the diner at the end of the episode and it pushes Mm. in on him, I guess looking out at the road, now finally out of her purview. Yeah. It's a great twin set of shots, I think, about where this relationship has gone. And as Jordan mentioned, this really could conceivably be the cutoff point, which importantly, Melfi is the one who makes that decision. Yes. Not Tony. Uh, I will say, however, that that could be the final image in the episode, but very deliberately, it is not. Tony goes back to his house and finds the comfort of home and his consistent
0: wife. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about that in a second, but the last thing I want to say about that uh, scene in the diner... And again, it just speaks to the former intimacy shared by Melfi and Tony that we've discussed at length is beyond that of a normal doctor-patient relationship. The scene structurally, if you looked at the lines on paper and didn't tell anybody it was a doctor-therapist, could almost be a breakup scene for a relationship. Mm-hmm. Where yeah. that, that was a different time for us. Lines like that. And Tony saying, all right, I know I don't deserve your help. Might as well be, look, I know I don't deserve a second chance. You know, we've seen the scene before. But it's just very, it's, it's familiar, but it's very different, mm. which is, speaks to, you know, the dynamic of Tony and Melfi being familiar, but also very different for a lot of mm. reasons. And then we get into, let's talk about this. This is one of my favorite sequences, personal favorite. Obviously, the Melfi scene is the standout, but one of my personal favorite sequences, because this is something that you will only see on The Sopranos, is this last scene with Tony and Carmela at home. It's just I I love it so much. It's gorgeous in its willingness to just be still, and slow, and quiet, and show two people just living at home. Nothing remarkable happens here. She heats up some pasta. She rubs his back. She comments it's a little weird to see him there that time of day. He eats. She goes through mail. It takes forever, but it's it's um, it gets me sad and also happy because it's so good but let's break down this last scene here what do we think of this
2: well this is you know paul has said this a few times now this is uh, you know the the calm center of of tony's life um ultimately he's in a good place because he's able to come home and to have carmella there with him and perhaps if he had things more together if he was a little bit more stable he would see how important this part of his life is and how he needs to focus on this Um, I I, Chris you said it really well you know I so appreciate you know the slowness of this scene and the time that they took and how Tony does not even seem to know where to stand or how to be in that moment he's so lost but eventually he he comes to settling down and I think that's really important Carmela knows what to say to him she knows what to do she sees him standing lost in the kitchen well what's the key to Tony's heart hey I'll heat up some pasta for you why don't you sit down? She's accommodating. Do you want something to drink? Do you want some cheese for this pasta? He says no, but he does ask her to sit with him, mm. and she does. Um, you know, this is this is kind of a settling down. He thinks, you know, what? If I can't be centered by Dr. Melfi, perhaps, perhaps I can find my center here. I actually, I I think it is a, a somber scene, but it it is hopeful.
0: Yes. Yeah. It's a it's a mix of a lot of things. It's sad because he's. Searching for something that he can't grasp, but it's also hopeful because they both kind of soften for each other in this moment after a very tense hour for them.
1: Mm. Both the opening sequence and this episode, the scene that ends this episode, are framed by music. Both songs have a theme of time, Mm. but the first song, the Sinatra song, is a broad expanse of time over one's life. If Sinatra's life is any indication, then the way that you look at that life is a number of passionate love affairs. Time is on my side, the Rolling Stones song, looks at time differently. Time is on my side, you'll come running back to me. And Tony comes home to Carmela, and that is where he finds that calm that might not save him, but as Jordan mentioned, something is sad, but also of comfort and hopeful in a way that this woman is there for him. Again, as we said at the end of last season, you want Carmella in your corner.
0: Yeah, very well said. It's a beautiful episode, beautiful start to what is going to be a classic season of television. And I'm excited to cover it with you guys. Any final thoughts on Guy Walks Into a Psychiatrist's Office before we wrap? Professor Hugh?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you know, it. it I think... You know, Carmella admonishes Tony in saying that he needs to get back to therapy. Mm. Uh, I don't know that he can function without it. I think he is seeing that his life really falls apart without having that in his life. We see that when he tries to go to the other therapist and tries to connect with this gentleman in some way. It does not work. Um, You know, I think a lot of this languishing and directionlessness that we see from Tony in peacetime is because he does not have someone to sharpen him in the way that Melfi does. And I I use the word sharpen very purposely. I think he's never more focused about his life and what he needs to do and about his direction than when he's left one of those therapy sessions. So it's, you know, Melfi is like his whetstone in many ways, though I, I don't know if she realizes that in quite that way. Um, So I think that's, that's the thing that's going to be most important to him is finding something that is equivalent or in getting her back. So that's what we have to look forward to.
1: Something that I liked about this episode and that I
2: did not think was an accident
1: was that it drew on a number of things from season one and specifically imagery from the pilot. His going down to pick up the newspaper, the way the episode revolves around slash leads up to big family gathering, barbecue. But again, as we've mentioned, Tony has taken Baghdad and now he has to fucking run Baghdad. And in some ways, it's even worse. (laughs) And there's new problems, which I think, as I mentioned last season, these new problems will give this new season a different character, a feel of its own. No disrespect to Uncle Junior and Livia as characters, terrific characters, but we can't just repeat the same beats with them. So we're finding new depths with Big Pussy, we have a new character in Janice, and... The question of what will happen ongoing in Tony's mood, his inner life, his quality of life, and the question mark hanging over Dr. Belfie will guide
0: us through this season. Amen. Great, great stuff, guys. I agree. I'm very excited, and uh, we're not done with new characters. There's a lot of great stuff uh, about to come. This season is expanding into new territory, as we will soon find out. I'm pumped. Glad we're back in business, boys. Let's keep it going. This has been The Sopranos Podcast. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And we will see you next time. And we will definitely not resuscitate you because it is Do Not Resuscitate, Season 2, Episode 2. See you next time. If you like The Sopranos Podcast, please follow us on social media. At The Sopranos Podcast on Facebook, Sopranos Podcast on Twitter, and The Sopranos Podcast on Instagram. To email us, hit us up at The Sopranos Podcast at gmail.com. Please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave us a five star review. Thank you for listening to The Sopranos Podcast.